you cannot live without trust. That's not possible. And one of the things that happens for people, even psychologically within a relationship after they experience betrayal, is trust becomes difficult for them to get. But trust mm-hmm. is not optional for us. We can't like when you when you start withdrawing trust, you'll just fall down into a bottomless well of cynicism and then nihilism, and then you're in yes. despair. Re re realize, not just think about or believe about, but they can re realize sacredness in their life in a way uh, that is aligned with the acquisition of knowledge and the cultivation of wisdom. I think that is very that's the that's the core argument I'm making and what I'm proposing. excited about this so great I think, I think um so the listeners might not know who you are so I just thought I would let you introduce yourself because I'm actually quite new a new fan so I don't know your total background what I know is you're a university professor you do cognitive science and you're working on some really cool projects that seem interesting so I'll just let you kind of <laughs> I'll let you go yeah um I, I, I'm John Ravicki. I'm a professor at the University of Toronto. As you said, I'm in cognitive science. I'm also in cognitive psychology. I have a, a double appointment. Um, and I've, um, I suppose how most people might have heard of me is I did an online lecture series called Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. I have a bunch of other series on uh, uh, the Cognitive Science Show channel. I've done one on the nature of consciousness, the nature of the self, uh, the nature of transformation, and doing one right now um, on uh, the nature of psychopathology. All of these are done dialogically. I'm doing them with other people, Greg Enriquez, uh, Christopher Master Pietro, Zach Stein, uh, Gary Hovenesian. And then I also have um, a Voices with Verveki, where I meet with people and do dialogue um, about uh, a lot of these emerging topics and concerns that people have. Um, I also do academic work. I publish uh, on uh, the nature of intelligence and relevant relevance realization, um, wisdom, meaning in life, etc. Yeah, that's awesome. And a lot of our listeners have come from, um, they grew up maybe in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and now have decided that they don't believe it. They walk away for whatever reason. And so I was wondering if you'd be willing to share your religious background. Yes. Um, I have a, a, a perhaps a strong analogy with many of your listeners that I was brought up in a fundamentalist Christian family and uh, in later high, late, late high school, grade 11, grade 12, uh, I guess where uh, this might happen to a lot of people. I read some books. I read a book by Roger Zelazny called Lord of Light. And around the same time, I read Robertson Davies' Fifth Business that introduced me to Jung. Lord of Light introduced me to Buddhism and Vedanta and alternative mythologies to the Christian mythos. Um, I read uh, Siddhartha by Herman Hesse that brings the, all of that stuff sort of together. Um, and it really, uh, it really um, blew me open in a sort of powerful way. Um, now, there was good to that because it took me out of that form of Christianity, which upon reflection and some therapy, I realized was quite traumatizing for me. Um, But uh, it it also left me uh, hungry and sort of like, sort of almost psychologically exposed. Um, And so fortunately for me, I went into university and took an introduction to philosophy course. And I met, we did the Republic and I met the figure of Socrates, which has had a profound impact on me, and the the idea of the cultivation of godlikeness through the cultivation of wisdom, um, Plato's uh, mystical vision of self transcendence. Uh, it just it just uh, I felt like it it spoke it spoke to me, uh, and it sort of articulated the incohate uh, hunger in me. Um, now I went on in academic philosophy, but very quickly, at least at that time. The topics of wisdom and self-transcendence and uh, whatnot 
uh, fall off the table and you get involved in all these very technical questions that are really not of interest to people outside of academic philosophy. Now, I found the skills that I was learning very valuable. I, I encountered figures who were deeply important to me, like Heidegger and Spinoza. Uh, but my hunger for wisdom and self-transcendence was not being addressed. Down the street, there was like a dojo for me, and they were teaching um, Vipassana meditation, uh, metacontemplation. These are Buddhist practices and Tai Chi Chuan, which is Tai Chi Chuan, which is a Taoist practice, in a, in a manner that I would later come to call an ecology of practice. That's where I got sort of the initial idea from that. And that, that just, just, and I started practicing all of that very, very deeply um, and religiously. And um, that, that sort of shifted. A lot of people were noting to me that I, I was changing how I was in the world. That shifted me. And I started reading uh, a, a Tillich that really introduced me to a new way of thinking about religion and Christianity in particular. Um, I read John Caputo's book on the mystical element in Heidegger's thought because I was already so interested in Heidegger and I got introduced to Eckhart and the Christian Neoplatonic tradition. I, I, um, I started reading Hedo and philosophy as a way of life and got really deeply interested in Stoicism and Neoplatonism, started incorporating those into my daily practices. Um, and uh, that's where I'm at sort of spiritually today. So how long did that last for you where you kind of felt like you didn't, I don't know, have a spiritual home maybe is a way to put it? Um, probably from, I don't know, the late, the sort of the middle eighties. In fact, I dropped out of university after my MA for a year because I was so disillusioned. Uh, but then I found cognitive science and I went back to university. Um, I, I guess it's it's lasted it lasted about 10, 15 years. I mean, I don't want people to think I was constantly in sort of Kierkegaardian angst. I mean, the, at some point, it, I felt like I was moving in a direction. Uh, I feel like I'm still moving. I don't think I've right. stopped, nor do I think I want to. Um, but yeah, that lasted for uh, for quite a while. Uh, but it what happened is. I, I began to bring some of these topics like mindfulness and wisdom into my psychology classes. And um, I noticed that my students were really uh, excited about this. And I was taking cognitive science and it was shifting into this embodied view of cognition, largely because of the influence of my friend and colleague, Evan Thompson. And so I was starting to bring all of this in and I noticed my students were really, and so um it, it, it started more and more to lead me to believe, I hope, I aspire with the appropriate humility that the issues I was wrestling with were not unique to me. Um, okay. Like when I, when I was in the depths of this and I got really stuck when I was trying to work on my PhD, I went into therapy um, and that also opened me up to uh, the more symbolic side of things. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I, I can't, I, I'm hesitating because I can't put sort of a definitive boundary on it because it sort of blurs and bleeds uh, sure. from sort of in, intense, um, sometimes very intense kind of darkness to um, where I'm at today. Well, and it, and it kind of comes up and down. I, when you said you felt stuck, that's interesting you use that word because that's the way I described the last few years while I was practicing um, in my faith because I'd have highs, like I'd have moments where I felt like I was supposed to be there. It's usually when you're serving other people or yes. it was usually moments like that, where you just feel like an outside love for people. Right. Yeah. And then, um, and then I did notice there are times where you just felt alone. Cause you're like, this doesn't feel right. I can't quite align what I'm yeah. really thinking with what I am supposed to think. Yeah. yeah. So that's, uh, but yeah, that's, I, and so I guess I mean, first I, of all, I, I, first of all I just want to acknowledge what I felt in you. Like there's some, like there's, I, I know, I hope this isn't presumptuous, but I know what you're, what you're putting your finger on that, that, that I used to at times call it even a black burning. It was like, there was this something burning because things just didn't fit together. Right. There was a gap. Yes. There was a, yeah. Yeah. And you try to make it work. 
Like you, you'd have highs, you'd have moments where you felt like you were okay. And then, and then just other times where you're realizing like, this isn't what I like reality. Isn't what I think it is kind of a thing. Um, so, uh, have, when you kind of stepped away from your religious practice, were you able to maintain relationships or were they strained a little bit? How, how did you navigate that? Um, It was odd. <laughs> um, I remember a, 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 a beloved cousin of mine. Um, he was, uh, he, st- he still is. And uh, um, he's still within, I guess, what, a, what I would call a fundamentalist framework. But I, I deeply respect him for his intellectual uh, capacities and integrity. But we had gone for a walk and I was talking to him and I remembered he was struggling to try and deal with this. And the only way he could do it was he said, well, I think you're a heretic. That was the category he could come up for me, um, uh, which I thought, thought was somewhat interesting. Um, the rest of my family wasn't so explicit. They, they kind of did a don't ask, don't tell kind of thing with me. Um, and because I wasn't living near them and I only saw them very infrequently, um, that sort of became, I mean, they knew I was no longer going to church. I tried, I tried, I, I went back like you and I tried a more liberal version and increasingly more liberal version of Christianity. And it just, I couldn't, as you did, I couldn't make it work. Um, and so I think they had enough respect for what they, how much they saw me trying that they, I think they just were sort of retreated into silent hope that I would some way how find my way back. Um, none of them wanted to argue with me. Um, uh, uh, perhaps yeah, be- go ahead. It becomes like an elephant in the room where yes. no one really wants to address it. And that's kind of yeah. what I'm learning and I'm trying to decide, and then maybe it's a case by case basis. Maybe it's not a hard, fast rule, but I am trying to figure out, do you talk about the elephant in the room so you can have deeper relationships? And just be able to be in the room of difference, or do you just ignore it? And I feel like the relationships that I currently have, where I can actually just say what I'm thinking, and then we can separate and say, "Well, I disagree, but I still respect you, right? I think you have good mm-hmm. qualities, you have good character, you know, you have wisdom. I can see that you're trying your best. Like that is enough to have that common commonality to have good relationships." Um, that's, but yeah, that you're, you're describing a lot of relationships, a lot of the struggle that, uh, those walk away from religion, they find the relationships either superficial, they're not authentic anymore. Cause yeah. So that's interesting that you, there there is that. And I mean, it, it takes a while, um, to find a proper venue and home for cultivating fellowship and friendship, as opposed to what we have in general, like coworkers and acquaintances. And yes. when, when you've been in religion, religio, to bind together, you, you're connected to people in a deep way, fellowship. And within the sphere of fellowship, you often de- develop uh, very deep friendships. Uh, friendship is where people are committed to each other's growth um in in an ongoing manner um and so it takes a while to find a place and for me i I actually just to be really honest i never found a place i had to make it i had to i had just like i I became um i don't know i I did i never intended nor do i know if i even want this job but i i'm still doing it now somebody who helps start and build communities where people can do these kinds of practices and engage in fellowship and uh, uh, spiritual friendship with each other. Um, So yes, I I think that sense of homelessness um, um, is a real challenge. And um, I I guess I would want to say that there are one, one, I want to, I want to be as careful as possible. I'm trying to encourage and create and co-create places where people who are post 
religious in the sense we're talking about can refine uh, fellowship and friendship in a way that is philosophically profound and spiritually transformative. That is exactly one of the things I am trying to do and committed that, to do. That sounds amazing because I, what I've found being in, and I'm not going to throw anybody under the bus because trying to waking up, this is what I feel like I did. And I would hate to be offensive to any of my family who I've hundred percent respect for trying to mm. stand for what they believe. Um, but I feel like I only found community in people that hated the same thing I hated. And that yeah. is just no basis for yeah. relationships. Um, the best relationships I found, you might meet them somewhere where you have this common experience, but I found that the relationship has flourished when we start focusing on different things that we have in common instead of this mm. thing that we dislike that we have in common. And it, it's interesting because um, often you have like this black and white thinking and that's how people describe a lot of, I don't know how to describe it, just like that dogmatic black and white, true or false, there's no yeah. in the middle. And I feel like it's a process to get rid of that. And I see it popping up in um, ex-Mormon spaces where there's still that black and white thinking. Um, I had an interview, my last interview, uh, my guest brought up the fact that maybe you have to not be able to see the good for a while to be able to step away from it. And then you can kind of start to see the good again and not be yep. so, yep. Um, I don't know, cynical, I guess. So I, I totally agree with that. Um, I went through a period where I would, I, I described myself as sort of a, a very trenchant um, atheist. I don't describe myself that now. Uh, that way I consider myself a non-theist. Um, but through Tillich and eventually through Christian Neoplatonism, I've come to appreciation, an appreciation in the multiple senses of that word, of Christianity that in some ways I never had within it. Um, um, and because of that, I've entered into deep and loving dialogos with several Christians. Um, and we, we consistently find it mutually beneficial, uh, to do so. Um, so I think that's very good advice that your friend gave you. Uh, I think stepping away from the propositional, and, and focusing on the ability to share practices. Um, uh, I think that is also advice I would give to, uh, you're not, the, the, you, if you're interacting with the nuns, the N-O-N-E-S that are seeking, you're, you're not gonna, you're, if, you, if you try, what we'll do is we'll cobble together a unified integrated metaphysics that we all commit to and sets of propos, that's not gonna happen. Uh, right. People are gonna have overlapping families, right? Uh, of, of propositions, but if you come together, uh, if you realize the kind of fellowship that's available around shared ecologies of practices uh, and, and a shared philosophical endeavor to talk deeply to each other about our ontological and metaphysical commitments, I think if you reframe that way, I think you're much more likely to make the kinds of connections um, that you're seeking and that afford uh, further progress in the cultivation of wisdom. Yeah. I feel like I've had a couple of aha moments and in the last six months or so, one of them was stop worrying about what I used to believe and start developing what I do believe. And that was a pretty big moment for me. And then, um, I did this, it was actually, it's like a weight loss thing, but it's, it's more development, like try to become the person that <laughs> doesn't weigh as much, not like do, um, try to avoid the yo-yo dieting stuff. Right. Yeah. And, um, this gal has set up this program and it's, it's really amazing. It's a lot of, I, I think cognitive behavioral science type stuff yeah. that she's integrated yeah. into it. And it's really amazing. And she had this, uh, coaching call where she mentioned that you really do have to believe where, um, believe you are where you're supposed to be. And I couldn't tell myself that I had kind of this atheistic mindset where I couldn't 
believe something like that without evidence or something like I, um, but I allowed myself to step into that. And it was, um, it was a little bit life-changing. Like I decided, even though I can say, I don't know when I don't know, I can still feel that feeling of feeling where you, you are, where you're supposed to be. That is a real feeling and it helps you navigate life, I think. So anyway, and it's interesting that came through a, a weight loss <laughs> program. <laughs> well, I mean, the way you're describing it, it it's, it, uh, that sort of makes sense to me. The, the way you framed it, it's, it's an aspirational project. And it sounds like it's trying to promote a kind of deeper transformation. And that I think uh, that makes sense to me then. Because typically that's what those, the aspiration to transform into uh, someone who is capable of reconnecting in a deep way, I think is an essential part of this journey uh, that we're both on. Um, I mean, what was helpful to me, and I don't know if, if this is helpful. I mean, it's, I've done a lot of work on you know, the cognitive science of meaning and the experience of sacredness and self-transcendence. And uh, what I'm trying to offer to people is an understanding of those uh, that doesn't explain them away, but explains their deep functionality, why they matter so much um, in a way that also helps to, uh, you know, vet uh, people's choices for certain practices that they want to take up. I mean, that's what I mean by I'm trying to bridge between science and spirituality. Uh, so that people can, uh, I want to be careful, people can re, re-realize, not just think about or believe about, but they can re-realize sacredness in their life in a way uh, that is aligned with the acquisition of knowledge and the cultivation of wisdom. I think that is very, that's the, if that's the core argument I'm making and what I'm proposing. Yeah. When you talk about the meaning crisis, when did you recognize it? Um, where did you, so you say you kind of began your meaning journey, I guess, kind of, and it was great. It was gradual. You don't yeah. really have a moment where you, um, I guess, do you ever still struggle with the feeling of meaningless? Like, does that ever bother you anymore? Um, um, only in the sense that it's been woven into an ongoing realization of the inexhaustibleness of reality um, and that I can't, well, I shouldn't, I have to give up something that I was taught. Um, I have to give up seeking a kind of cognitive closure, a kind of final resting place in which um, the, the dance of the, of the logos can be, will, will, will draw to a close. Um, but I don't, I don't have moments of despair. Um, I have faced, um, I mean, about seven years ago, my marriage ended and uh, I, I did face very deep grief and, um, tr- and trying, to, trying to realize how to be responsible and in right relationship to grief is something that, um, I think I've made some progress on, at least people around me say that's the case, people who know me well. And I, I try to share that with people. And I think that's, it's important when people are going through the process that we're talking about here, that they don't confuse despair and grief. You shouldn't try to cure grief. You're, I mean, um, you were close to something or someone, I, I don't know, how, I don't want to impose on you. Um, and whether or not that was fictional or not, that doesn't matter. That rela- your brain was had deep attachment, and you uh, you're going through a grieving process, and trying to get the discernment to separate. I don't want to. I don't want to right separate despair, which is sort of an appropriate hunger. You want to alleviate despair. You want to. You want to. You want to find something that satisfies that hunger in a way that's intellectually and aesthetically and morally responsible, but you shouldn't be trying to satisfy your grief. Um, I, I, I try to use this analogy with people. People ex- you experience grief like a hole, right? 
And they think that what they're trying to do is heal and close the hole. So I don't feel the hole anymore. No, no. What you do is you grow around the hole so it ceases to take up so much of your psyche. And so it actually becomes an aperture through which you can look at things that you couldn't see before. Um, and that I think is um, like really important. Like for people to take very, very, be very careful on getting that kind of Socratic self-knowledge to really discern and pull apart the, well, there's actually three things, despair and anger and grief. And you've got to like, you've got to get them clearly pulled apart and they have to be addressed in different ways. At least that's what I, uh, that's what I would propose. Interesting. Yeah. And I add in time. I think time has helped a lot. Just time helps. Uh, time helps because if it's, I mean, if you don't get stuck, the thing with grief, the problem that people have with grief is they can get stuck in it. Oh, I see. Um, yeah. Time helps if time is aligned to an aspirational project of becoming the kind of person that can bear the grief and actually look through it rather than be always looking at it and blinded by it. Oh, I like that a lot. Cause there, there was a time there where I was, it, it seemed, and it, this is a pretty universal experience. If I'm talking to my audience, they're going to um, maybe have gone through it where you wouldn't allow yourself to look at certain information. And then all of a sudden you allow yourself and it becomes this rabbit hole and you, you can't get enough of it. It's, it's starting yeah. to affect your life too, because you're staying up way late reading and then, yeah, yeah, yeah. and then you're consuming all of these podcasts and all of this information and it's just coming in. And then I remember I was in there and I, I kind of, it was almost like I, I looked up and I was like, Oh, my life is still going on. I yeah. still have to take care of my kids. I still have yeah. to get yeah. some sleep. I still have to um, take care of myself. And and it was when I like started focusing on my life that that was so much more healing than, I don't know, going down the rabbit hole. I don't know how to, yeah, but, it was, I think but, it was, yeah. but it was like this hunger that I did have to satisfy. And once it was yeah. satisfied, it was like, now my interest really isn't there anymore. Like I'll see things pop up where someone found this about the history or something like that. And I'm just like, huh? Okay. Like, I just don't, I don't care anymore. It's not my interest. My interest is somewhere else now, which it feels much better. Like, I don't know how to. No, no. I think that's well said. I think, yeah, I think that, the, 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 that that's well said. I, 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 I think that, um, yeah, it's, it's very much like you have to properly grieve a relationship um, so that you're capable of loving in uh, someone else again. Uh, and, and it's something similar to my mind to, to this. Like there's first a, like there's first a, the despair of, oh no, I'll, I'll never be loved again, right? And, and then right and then and then you'll do things about that and you'll fantasize and, and, and you know and you're bound up with the, the and then that the shocking part goes away if you if you keep moving. Um, and then you hit grief, and then you go through grief, and um, to the degree to which we are successful in it and existentially responsible to it, it in, it, it enables a, a kind of deeper sensitivity and responsiveness, so that we can we can love again in a way um, that is meaningful. And so I, I I think people do something deeply analogous that uh, with. Uh, with God, if I had to put a name on it. Um, and um, I yes. think your advice is well said. It, it, it has its own tempo and you can't force it. You have to, it's very, that's why Taoism has been very helpful to me for this process. You, you're, not, you're not just simply sitting there passively, but you can't make it happen. You have to participate in it. Yes. You have to get into it and flow with it and follow its rhythms and listen to its melody right? And you, you have to do like the way you play music, right? And you have to play along in the good senses of the word. Um, that's, that's, that's been, been uh, both something I've experienced from the first person and something that has come to me from sort of researching all of this. Yeah. And that's, that's when I feel the best is when I'm participating in life. That's kind of the, when I was only on the end of researching and taking in information, it yeah, was yeah. not satisfying. 
Um, I like the relationship analogy. <laughs> the analogy I tell people is like, I felt like I was cheated on because uh, you, you put a lot of trust in the organization. Yeah. You're kind of brought up to believe that they have um, the objective truth or at least the closest thing to it. You know that they're imperfect men leading the church, but you have this belief that they are the closest thing to it at least, because yeah. that is yeah. the special, uh, they have, we have a living prophet. That's how we were brought up to believe. And so when you kind of come out of this and you realize that they are people just like me with just a man-made thing placed on top of them and they didn't tell you information that's very relevant to the way you were believing you feel cheated on and so and I imagine uh Jordan Peterson I read his maps of meaning book and I think he had analogy in there about how when you find out you've been cheated on your reality like the reality you thought you were living in is not the reality you are in and and anyway reading through a lot of stuff I've mapped on my experience onto stories and stuff like that. And it's helped me kind of sort through everything, but yes, I think the, uh, I think the relationship analogy is very powerful there. Yeah. I, I, and I think the sense of betrayal is real. And, and, and again, that maybe allows me to put a finer point on what I'm talking about. You cannot live without trust. That's not possible. And one of the things that happens for people, even psychologically within a relationship after they experience betrayal, is trust becomes difficult for them to get. But trust mm-hmm. is not optional for us. We can't like when you, when you start withdrawing trust, you'll just fall down into a bottomless well of cynicism and then nihilism, and then you're in yes. despair, right? And so, like undertaking the practices that really enable you to wisely trust again, I think is a big part of, uh, of this journey. That's a good segue. I would also say that it's hard to trust yourself again, because you use so much self-deception to avoid, I call them snakes. Like you, some information will pop up here. It'll pop up there and you go, that doesn't really matter. Um, yeah, I, I think I will. Um, I'm going to skip ahead here. So you mentioned in one of your uh, lectures, a hypothetical of having uh, your parents work for the government and you're a research. Yeah. 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 In that, in that little segment, so I'll just, I'll paraphrase here for our audience. Um, You just turn 18, your parents pull you into a secret room in your house and they tell you they're not really your parents. They don't really love you. They are just following a script and doing their job. Um, Because you're 18, they are obligated to tell you, but they're willing to um, just walk out of the room like it never happened. And they will go back to living the way they lived. And you mentioned that um, we want to know reality. We don't, we wouldn't do it. And I was talking to my husband about this and he was like, you should ask him if that's not really the case, because I feel like some what I did, um, there were chances where I saw the snake and I ignored it. And I decided that was a joke. My parents are just joking. So I am going to continue living this lie because I think it's just a joke. And my reality, the reality I'd rather have is loving parents. And so I'm going to go on pretending I have loving parents. Does that it's and the fact that it's loving parents is no coincidence because we, use that phrase when, when I was active, you use that phrase that you have loving heavenly father and actually loving parents. They have the theology that we believe in a heavenly mother too. We just don't talk about her a lot. And Mm. so we believe we have these loving parents. And so, and, and that gives you meaning and purpose because he loves you and he wants you to do the things anyways. So I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Well, uh, well, first of all, uh, uh, just a little bit, um, I did say in the, in their setup, they give you sort of incontrovertible evidence. Oh, okay. Right, right. right. But um, and maybe that's when the the actual collapse of belief happens because I did feel that, and where I am now, I don't feel like I can go back. But there was no. moments where maybe there was little peaks into what I thought was not fitting right. Either you're in school yeah. and you're learning something, you're like, wait a minute, you know, or whatever it is. 
So, so, so let me, but let me respond to the intent because okay. um, uh, I, uh, uh, um, let's say that it's not something uh, like that, that's that definitive perhaps, but so we should question people before the event and see if they would even go to the event. So I, I also regularly do this. I will poll my students in my classes and, and here we're falling back on the relationship analogy again. And I'll say, how many of you are in like really satisfying romantic relationships? And they'll put up their hands and I say, okay, now I'm just addressing these people. And it's usually a large number, by the way. Um, and I'll say, keep up your hand if you would want to know if your partner was cheating on you, even though that would destroy the relationship. And 95% of them keep up their hand. There is a 5% that take their hands down. Okay. Right. So I'm what I'm saying is I acknowledge that. And this isn't like a bona fide scientific experiment sure. or anything, but but still it's pretty reliable result across multiple classes, right? And these are people that are supposed to be the most invested in romantic relationships of where they are in their life. So it's not completely useless evidence either, right? And so it's like, yeah, there's something, and you know, Robert Nozick has an argument of this, and Plato makes the argument. When you start to suspect that something isn't real, um like that triggers a, a definite meta desire in us, um, which is in addition to whatever fulfills our desires and gives us meaning, we want it to be real. We really want it to be real. Now, but that isn't that isn't all, usually like oh the the curtains part and you see the man behind the curtain and the Wizard of Oz is just a fraud. That's usually not what happens. So a way of thinking about it is you've been looking at an object in a distance and you're pretty convinced that a human being and you've been looking and but as you move, you start to get little things around. Right. Right. Uh, but you still but then. So, right. And then all of a sudden there's a shift and it, 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 it gestalts, it changes. and You go, oh, that's a scarecrow. Mm. I, I, all this time I've been thinking it's. A, and, and you don't really do that. You can't sort of like, right, like ahead of time. But notice once it, once it does that self-organization, you can't go back. You can't go, well, I'm going to go back to seeing it as a human. And you try, you can try for quite a while. You can even pretend, but there's a part of you that won't let go because you are trying to be in contact with reality in a fundamental way. So here's the, that's a long answer to your husband, but what I would say is, <laughs> I think there's a minority of people who would try. I think you can, and when we're in a gray zone, I think you can ignore the potential to regestalt sort of around the edges, but as soon as it starts to take on a life of its own and starts, and, and then you, and once it regestalts, you can't go back. You can't go back. Right. And I, one of the things that's been really healing for me is to interact with faithful members um, that are still members of the church. And they, um, there's the thing I'm realizing more and more people with good character, there's really no divide that separates them, like a true divide. So I, I've realized that there are people that have healthier relationships within religion than I did, I guess. Yes, I've realized and, that. And too. they've actually, they seem to be doing the same game I'm doing, looking through this lens and it helps them. And I really don't have any judgment on that. Like I, I'm, I want to support them where they need to be. Um, so I don't really feel like people need to do my path because I don't know their nature and nurture, maybe their nature and nurture. That's the best place for them. It's kind of like climbing to the top of the mountain and there are more than one path, I guess. I guess I'm universalist in my, <laughs> in my um, meaning domain. <laughs> um, uh, so go ahead. Well, I'd like to speak to that because um, I think that's very much the case. I, I explicitly and repeatedly say, if people come engage with my work and that allows them to in intellectual honesty, return to the depths of their faith, and that does happen, great, right? right? I, I, like, great, I, I, I want to alleviate the meaning crisis. I'm not here 
to set up, you know, you know, a block of agreement. But that's not what this is about. This is about really trying to improve uh, people's lives. I do think it's also part, like I, like I say, I have deep and profound uh, conversations with committed Christians, uh, with committed Muslims, with committed Jews, and we often the the bonds that are formed there cultivated there are we both parties admit these are deep and transformative because and here's the more controversial thing i'm not going to say i think in the end we we pretend we're in religion we we and this is because of things like the protestant reformation and a bunch of things we think of this as how it's always been notice how we equate faith with belief as if, if they're synonyms so we pretend that we're engaged in some kind of knowledge about some specific kinds, special kinds of entities. When I, I think that what's really driving religious behavior when it is healthy and functional, the way we're talking about here, is the cultivation of wisdom as opposed to knowledge. And wise people recognize each other. Oh, sorry, that's, that, that's too pretentious. I, sorry. Lovers of wisdom the original meaning of the word philosopher, right? Lovers of wisdom recognize and resonate with each other across these divides in a way that often, right, undermines the idea, but we have to believe X. Because what you find, we research on this, you know, if, if you're in a religious tradition, your ability to cultivate wisdom is better than if you're secular. But it doesn't matter which religious tradition you're in. Right. So when I, when you say the first part, religious people usually go, yay. And then, and then I say the second part and they go, Oh, right. Uh, and it's like, yeah, because uh, what seems to be, I want to be, I don't want to be insulting here. I'm, so I'm trying to be very careful, but I would propose that what is really efficacious in people's religious lives is the cultivation of wisdom, the reduction of foolishness, the enhancement of connectedness to themselves, to other people, to the world. And I think people of good faith and genuine philosophia, um, the, the fellowship love of wisdom, can connect across these doctrinal divides and resonate with each other in mutually beneficial and powerful ways. That I, I'm, I, I, I'm more than persuaded of that. I'm convinced of it. Yeah. Um, okay, so with a little bit of time, so I have, I, I talked to a friend that I was interviewing you and I had a couple that were like, no way, because they're really big fans. And um, I did want to ask this question because I'm going to ask it for him. He said, like he watched your meetings. He watched the whole thing. So I'm only on like episode seven or something like that. And he's watched your whole thing. He's an active member. And he's like, all of these, so I, I feel like, I feel like the, the, the church is the solution to all of the problems of the meaning crisis. And so I, how did I word this question? I want to ask, uh, is it possible that this, this meaning crisis could be solved by some kind of restored church? That's what the, the claim is in the LDS faith. Like, is it um, could there be a new restored, revealed faith system by God, say the LDS faith, uh, like, could that be possible? Is that, is, is that all in your mind possible? I guess <laughs> asking for a friend. <laughs> uh, well, I hope you're interested in the question as well. Yes. Uh, well, I, it does make me wonder because you know, you, you said that scarecrow analogy, and it makes me yeah. wonder, well, could the person be dressed up as a scarecrow, right? Yes, yes. So and there, there's always like that deeper maybe, right? Or that the, the revealed things that are being revealed have more to do with reality than just like a man-made construct of some sort, right? Like where where is that metaphysical truth? I don't, if that makes, I don't know. So yeah. No, no. Uh, no, no, I think that's good. And I mean, have we, uh, you know, uh, by the way, if you want to talk again, um, I'm happy to do so. Uh, if you, if there's more questions you'd like to address, I, I sense, I sense a bit of a kindred spirit and authenticity in you. And so I, I'm just all, 
I'm responding to that if, if, if you would that. like that. <laughs> okay. Um, so I don't have a foreclosure argument on religion. I, I, I can't say, and here is the argument that shows it can't transform its way in the way that's needed. Um, and, and do I see in these conversations genuine and deep reformation and transformation going on within people that are within a committed religious home, nevertheless trying to seriously and deeply respond to the meaning crisis? I do see that. I do see that. Um, I also know, and I don't think any of these people would disagree with me, that they, there's you know an entrenchment of um, a questionable framing of reality uh, around certain propositions, um, there are ways in which these group, these the institutional history of these uh, have hurt and harmed people, traumatized them. Um, that needs to be properly met and addressed. Um, and I think I do think that these. Hmm. Yes, I want to say this. I do not think a religion can do this unless it enters into a deep reciprocal reconstruction. Um, with the best cognitive science of the day and the best uh, living philosophy. I don't just, I don't mean academic philosophy, but the cultivation of wisdom, the real deep uh, cultivation of wisdom uh, um, for that and trying to find the best sort of intellectual framework for doing that. I, I do see people in all of the faiths doing exactly what I'm saying. Um, and maybe that will work. Um, especially if they also find ways of reaching out to heal those that have been harmed uh, or, and traumatized. Um, now, if you ask me about probabilities, I don't think it's highly, I don't think it's probable. And I, I said, I think it's very possible, but I don't think it's probable because I think th that the way in which the religions have bound themselves um, to a certain historical program uh, will make it challenging and difficult. But like I said, that's sort of an, a, a, the best estimation on my part. I'm not, I don't have a clear definitive answer to this. I, 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 I can say definitively that this is definitely the case for people within, like individuals and in small groups within religions. I see it, I do. Um, but I also think it's definitely possible outside of the established religions uh, in a growing way mm. amongst the nuns. And I see that even more so. Um, so, so this I appeal guess, to authority would, would probably not resonate so much. The appeal to authority and also the way in which, I mean, especially Christians in the Protestant traditions, right? Um, they've lost connection to the wisdom tradition of the West. Um, for example, people forget that the West does not stand just on the pillar of the Bible. The West stands on another pillow, another pillar, maybe a pillow too, another pillar, uh, which is the whole Platonic tradition. And, uh, and the fact that Neoplatonism was able to do this not only for Christianity, but for Islam and Sufism, uh, for Judaism and Kabbalah, and all along the Silk Road, even interactions with Buddhism and Vedanta, that says something that needs to be acknowledged. And the degree to which the existing, uh, I don't know what to call them, Western religions or Abraham, uh, Abrahamic religions or whatever, I don't know, but the degree to which they can't uh, recover their connections to that wisdom tradition is the degree to which they will not be able to address um, the people who are secularized and who are com committed, I think justifiably so, to the power of the scientific and technological worldview. Right. That it is related to something else I wanted to ask. Um, I read, I was listening to Jonathan Peugeot and he, I'm going to read something he said in a video it was on his video he published it in 2020 and it's on the meaning of christ's death 
um, he was talking about Fraser, and I'm not sure who Fraser is, but he said Fraser, for example, who used all the ancient myths, you know, the so-called dying God to trivialize Christianity. Do you, okay, so I remember now he he was talking about how um, you have these thinkers that will just tie Christ into another like um, story of the hero, right? Yep. And and yep. try to say it's not special and they don't realize they're looking through the lens of Christ and the event of Christianity was so ground shaking that so many of those that opposed it even, even today can't help, but to do the, the looking through the glass of Christianity. So, and I hear this a lot and I've heard Jordan Peterson even say or allude to it, that we are stand like, if we don't, if we don't um, maintain this foundation that we're on this Christian foundation that we are on, we might lose what we have, but I, I see you're saying the foundation isn't just Christianity. I mean, it's certainly a part of it, but it's not just Christianity. And certainly our foundation should be based on reality, not. (laughs) So anyway, it's just interesting that you brought that up because that was one of the things I wanted to talk about is like, is the story of Christ is it more significant than the central in in our Western culture? Is it more significant than the other central stories by other religions? Or is it like, is there a, no, 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 let's talk about this. Yeah. I really, I've really wanted to talk about this and I've never actually had a public forum to do it. So can we talk about this for a bit? Because I think this is really important, right? Um, For example, uh, and you know, and I have good relationships with both, Jonathan and with Jordan, I, I have deep criticisms of them too. Um, but you know, I, I, I Jordan is a Jungian, um, and the the uh, you know uh, what Jung is talking about, of course, is controversial. But Jung's notion of the archetype, it, it, like, and the idea, you know, Fraser was an anthropologist, right, or sort of a, an anthropologist. He wrote the Golden Bow, Bow, and he was trying to uh, make that clear. You know that this motif of the dying and resurrecting God um, is an archetype. You see it cross culturally, cross historically, and Jungians would are—they're <laughs> supposed to agree with that proposal. That's kind of how, you, like, if you want to get into the Jungian events, your card, your, your member's card says believes in archetypes, right? That's got to be <laughs> that's on the card, right? Um, and so. Um, and that's a tension. And so many people say, Jordan Peterson in Christianity and look, and it's like, well, be careful because Jung is not a Christian. Jung's a non-theist. Jung thinks that the, this archetype is you know, part of the unconscious, the individual, especially the collective unconscious. And therefore there's no one version of it uh, that should be considered prim- uh, primary because all of the versions, and this is a platonic notion, by the way, Jung is a Platonist of the psyche. All of these versions, all of these versions, are just images of the archetype that itself is never ca- perfectly or finally captured in any image, and that's and then Jonathan's responding to that, and then what he's trying to say is, oh, but it's because we see this through Christian eyes. But what I would say to Jonathan, and he would he would argue with me, is yeah, but the what gives you your way of making this sort of specific is you've stepped out of the psychological archetypal nature of Christ's incarnation, and you're giving it this Neoplatonic reading because Neoplatonism is huge influence um, and a living influence within Orthodox Christianity, the kind right. that, that Jonathan, and, 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 and again, right? And, and, and so that is what you're sort of pointing to in order to try and make this story special. You're saying, wow, but there's this Neoplatonic account that takes the specificity of the idea of the incarnation of the Logos and gives it a Neoplatonic reading that makes it really profound. I I don't deny that that historically happened or that it is also currently relevant. I think both of those are true. But notice what that that does. It's that. Uh, Because other than that, you get get this weird thing because Jordan, Jordan Peterson will say things like that. He'll say, but the Christ story is the best one. And I'm trying to get at, like, what is like, what do, what do you mean by that? Right. Uh, because what he's trying to say is, I think he's trying to say something like it's the best story. And therefore that is why you should believe it. A kind of pragmatism. 
Mm. But I want to say, but what makes it the best story? You can't say because it's true, because then you're just arguing in a circle. What makes, and then he, he seems to say, well, because it, it, it recognizes suffering better. And I'm saying, but why, what makes that the, the absolute criterion for being the best story? The Buddha's story is better at telling me about mindfulness, mm-hmm. right? The Taoist story is better at telling me about flow. I don't go to the Christians to learn about how to get into the flow state, right? The, you know, the Neoplatonic story is a better story for telling me about intelligibility and how he makes, like, why, like, what's the independent argument for, and suffering is the thing that most deeply discloses reality. And I don't think there is any such argument. I don't, I, is suffering one of the ways, we talked about it earlier, grief, through which people get deep disclosure? Yes. But are mindfulness practices another way in which people get deep, deep disclosure? Yes. Are flow practices? Yes. Are practices working with the intelligibility? It's, yes. Yes. And that's why I can't, the, if you, I think if you try to unpack what's going behind those arguments, it actually leads you back to, I can't privilege this story in any way that I can justify uh, other than for me, you know, suffering is what is prominent in my life and I need Christianity to address it. But, you know, if you bring that before a Buddhist, they might say, but where's the mindfulness? Mindfulness, I, you know, it's so paying deep. attention. Yes, exactly, exactly, exactly. Yeah, I like that a lot because there are things missing, at least in my religious upbringing, the paying attention thing that Jordan yeah. Peterson just harps on all the time. I love it. And it it helps you have that participating knowing, right? Yeah. Like if you're paying yeah. attention, then you can know where you're supposed to go next. Yes. And yeah. and I guess you do do that while you're praying. And when you're doing the right kind of prayers where you're actually paying attention to your prayer and not just going through the motions and saying, blah, 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 right? Like you're actually, you're praying to figure out how can I, what do I need to do today? You know, and you're just really contemplating. Um, yeah, those prayers went better. I, can I, oh man, can I respond just, to that? Yeah, go yeah. ahead. See, this is what I mean about, and this is something I discovered uh, because I was also in the, the sort of Protestant legacy, right? is there is a deep and powerful mindfulness meditation tradition within Christianity. It's still, it's vibrantly alive. And it is, I think it is as profound and as deep as anything you'll find in Buddhism and Taoism. I'll say that without hesitation. Um, So the people in Christianity that have kept the Neoplatonic tradition alive have kept practices of mindfulness and the cultivation of wise attention going in a way that is distinct from petitionary prayer where you're asking for something like they're, 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 they're right. And, and so um, again, right. The degree to which Christianity has lost the connection to that tradition is the degree to which it can't, this isn't quite the right verb, Marlon, but I don't know. It can't compete, but it's not the right, quite right verb, but it can't right with the, those wisdom traditions that offer that, because if you're not training people's attention you're not training the primary way in which they are connected to reality and to the world. Yeah. A lot of those traditions, they work backwards too. They, you know something and then you interpret that into everything you do instead of trying to discover what to know, what yes. to. Yes. And yes. That, that's the other block that I, I was running into when I was practicing. Well, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. And I, I, it's interesting. Uh, you are on that four horsemen of meaning podcast yep. and you mentioned that you were traumatized by Christianity. And I said, this guy is someone I want to talk to because he is acknowledging something that I haven't ever heard Jordan Peterson acknowledge. And maybe it's cause he doesn't have the religious background. Um, mm-hmm. and it's just not talked about a lot in this space where, okay, we're not, we're not going to go down the new atheist path, mm-hmm. but there is something they're addressing that this, this uh, mind space is not addressing. And there is, yeah, a grieving process you have to go through and then just figuring out how to navigate relationships with the community you're still in. Like mm-hmm. I live in Utah. So a lot of my community believes this. Of course. So I don't, I don't want to be 
hateful toward it or angry no. toward it anymore. And I did go through that. I went through that anger phase and it still pops up every once in a while and something happens in the news or something, but I don't want that to be my thing I live by. <laughs> so I really, yeah. If it means so. anything to you and I'm not setting myself up as an authority, but uh, just because we're in genuine, authentic dialogue, I keep, yeah, I encourage you in that. Like what you just said, I think, yes, that, stay true to that. I, I, I really believe that will, that will give you good guidance. I, I hope other people are in the same experience as me can find healing wherever that is. And I'm not going to judge that if they feel like they need to deconstruct Mormonism more and then help others do that through uh, podcasts and that's where they're finding their flow then <laughs> I, I can't judge that but this is where I found I, there's got to be other people like me that are just not feeling getting it from those that kind of content so I was trying I want to create content that will help point people to what they do believe whatever that is and yeah anyways so yeah I appreciate it and yeah, yeah there I'd are a lot there so. are a lot of those people there are a lot of those people so keep doing what you're doing that's i mean that's we share the same goal i there's a lot of those people and all of my work is directed towards giving them a, a, a philosophically intellectually respectable uh spiritually transformative uh response that is neither you know I, I must return or I'm just going to be angry at it for the rest of my, but other than those two alternatives, just that, that place that you're in. Yes. I think, um, I think there's a lot of people and I think you're doing good work by trying to reach out and help them. Yeah. Well, thank you. And hopefully we can talk again. <laughs> I'm gonna yes. Stop I would like that very much. <laughs>